0: Some of you may remember that at the beginning of April, we began a sermon series that we entitled Sacred. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, sacred isn't a word that we use very often anymore. It's kind of fallen out of favor to some degree. Webster's Dictionary defines sacred as worthy of religious veneration, worthy of religious veneration, or entitled to reverence and respect. Those are sort of the ideas behind that word sacred. In its original context, the word sacred was used to delineate something that had been set apart, something that had been set aside for a divine purpose. Today we're going to be looking at the sacredness of the human body. Now before we begin, I'm going to pray. And before I pray, let me just say, um, I started off and I thought, oh, this will be great, this will be easy. And I, let me tell you, I'm leaving so much out today. And so just know that, uh, that this is going to be sort of a 30,000-foot view of this topic but I'd love to have you continue to, to pursue and to see what God has to say about the sacredness of these bodies that he has given us. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, um, as I look out in this room and see all these people, I just, um, I'm filled with gratitude. I'm filled with thanks. I'm, I feel privileged and honored to be able to stand up before these people and to, to Lord willing, um, reveal and to represent you uh, to them um, accurately and truly Father, as Rob prayed earlier today, I prayed that no one would be able to leave this place today without having had a life-changing encounter with you, the living God. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So 21 years ago, um, a small town in northwest Georgia made national news. Noble, Georgia sits off of the Martha Berry Highway, uh, south of Chattanooga and a bit north of Rome. Its uh, noble is home to the Tri-State Crematorium. Some of you guys maybe know where I'm going with this. For 30 years, the crematorium had been serving families in Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee. In February of 2002, however, the crematorium became uh, basically the grounds for a national scandal. Acting on an anonymous tip, police raided the grounds of the Tri-State Memorial uh, Crematorium, and they discovered... 339 bodies littered around the property, uncremated, unburied, and exposed to the elements. Needless to say, people were shocked, people were appalled. We actually lived on Lookout Mountain at the time, and our neighbor, who was directly across the street from us, was an elderly man whose wife had died just the year prior her body was the very first body that was discovered when the police showed up on that property. Needless to say, he was broken. He was traumatized. Every time we talked to him in the street, he wept and cried over over what had happened to his wife. Later that year, the owner of the crematorium, Brent Marsh, was arrested and faced 787 criminal counts and over 1,000 years in prison. Again, When the story made national news, people were shocked, they were appalled at the treatment of the human remains. Let me ask you guys a quick question. When you hear that story, and I left out a lot, what do you feel? What emotions well up inside of you? My guess is that most of you would feel shocked and appalled as well. Something inside of us tells us that the human body, whether it's dead or alive, should be treated with the utmost honor and the utmost dignity, something tells us that our bodies are sacred. The question is, what do we see in the pages of Scripture about the sacredness of the human body? Is it sacred? And if so, why? Let's take a quick look. First of all, what we're going to see is that our bodies are sacred because they are designed by God himself. Look at Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And many of you are familiar with Genesis chapter 1. Our future home, this earth, was formless and it was empty with the exception of three things, darkness, chaos and the spirit of God. That seems to be all there was. In verses one through two, the author of Genesis paints a picture of God hovering over the nascent world of chaos and darkness. And interestingly, the Hebrew word hovering has the implication of tender love. In fact, Eugene Peterson, the author of The Message, translates verses one and two like this. He says, God created the heavens and the earth. All you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness a bottomless emptiness and inky blackness, God's spirit brooded like a bird over or above the watery abyss. When we think about brooding, we think of someone in a bad mood, like maybe a moody teenager. <laughs> uh, but when a bird broods, it's literally sitting on its eggs, protecting them and caring for them until they hatch. That's the imagery here. God is hovering over a world that he cares deeply about. Now, when we typically think of Genesis, we, probably most of us, think about Genesis as the beginning of all history, but it's not. In fact, we know from the rest of Scripture that the creation of the earth and our human story is actually only one chapter in a much larger tale in which that has chapters that both precede and follow it. Preceding the creation of our world, the world we read about in Genesis 1, was a chapter we only know a little bit about what we do about know about that part of the human story however is that there was a spiritual realm in which an angel whom we call satan led a rebellion against god himself some theologians believe that the earth we see and painted painted in genesis chapter 1 is actually the result of that spiritual conflict in heaven the earth is now a place of darkness and destruction and that would be a very different kind of chaos over which god hovered either way Genesis 1 recounts God's creative act. Basically, what we see is he says, first we'll need a little light, and then we'll need some dry land to rise up out of the water, and then we'll need some plants and fruit trees to cover over this land. After that, we'll need fish and all sorts of aquatic life to teem in those waters, and then there should be birds and bugs and mammals, and in the blink of an eye, the earth has been transformed from a place of darkness and chaos into a world of light and life. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. And after all of that creation, all of that bringing of something into nothing, verse 25 tells us, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. You get the sense that God is experiencing deep satisfaction as he looks upon his creation, his created world. Throughout Genesis 1, God uses that phrase, it was good, six different times. But it's not until after he creates Adam and Eve that he declares, and behold, it was very good. There was something special about humanity, something sacred. As we read earlier, we've been made uniquely in God's image. No other part of God's creation received that honor. God made us like himself, moral, relational, creative, and then he carefully placed the image of himself inside a physical body in order that we too might brood over our physical worlds, over the domains which he has placed us over. So what does this all mean? We could cover any number of things here. We could talk about how God created us physically as sexual beings designed to multiply and fill the earth which he created. We could also talk about how we're created with another purpose to continue the work that God began, that work of bringing order out of chaos using these physical bodies that he formed. We could talk about how our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's any number of things we could talk about, but I really just want to focus on one thing here, and that's that I believe that human beings are God's special and unique work of art. David, in Psalm 139, seeks to capture this idea when he writes this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God made us. He is making us. Have any of you ever created a work of art where you felt like you got it almost right? Maybe some of you in this room are artists. For some of you, that work of art may have been a nearly perfect poem in which you brooded over just the right words for weeks or for months on end. Fabrice, our uh, poet, is here somewhere. He might know something about that. For others of you, it might have been a painting. It may have been a sculpture that you brooded over, adding color here and some shading there until it was just as you envisioned it. Sarah Esther Mary may be in this room this morning. For someone else, it may have been a song that you labored, labored over, lyrics, music, rhythm, until it was just right, Jordan Bradshaw. When it was finished, I would imagine, or I could begin to imagine, that you felt deeply satisfied and even deeply protective over that thing that you had created. I know that I did. When I was probably about eight years old, my dad took me on a fishing trip to Pensacola, Florida. I still remember the name of the boat, actually, very interestingly. It was called the Low Baby, which I think L-O means little one baby. I had to look that up. Anyway, I absolutely loved this fishing trip. We caught some fish. We had a great time. I thought the first mate was the coolest person ever. You know, I don't know why that as an eight-year-old, but I still remember that guy in his jean shorts and his tank top. I specifically remember loving the lures that we were fishing with. In fact, there's a picture of something like that up on the screen. And uh, so I just loved all of them, but I loved the lure in particular. So when I got home that su- summer, I decided to make my own lure. And so I took some fabric and I cut it into these little strips to make it look like the body of a squid, and then I sort of colored it with a yellow pen, and I took tinfoil, and I put tinfoil around the tip of each of the squid tentacles, and then I took a bullet-shaped sinker, and I put it on the top of the lure, and I covered it with tinfoil, too, and I was so proud of my lure. I I absolutely loved this little thing that I had made. In fact, I loved it so much that 43 years later, it's still sitting in a cigar box with all of my other little treasured possessions from my childhood. There's a point to this. In the same way that we are protective over and love our creations, so God loves and protects his. Our physical bodies are God's unique work of art. I believe that's why he cares so deeply about what happens to us. That's why sins like murder, man-stealing, sex outside the covenant of marriage, and debauchery get mentioned all the way throughout Scripture. All sins in one way or another wound and mar the image of God in humanity. God loves our sacred bodies, and we should too. Behold, it was very good. Any discussion about the sacredness of the human body also has to deal not just with the sacredness of the body, but also with the brokenness and the corruption of those bodies. That's our second point. Some of you are familiar with the Netflix series, The Crown. Some of you guys have seen that. Over the course of seven seasons, the series tracks the story of Queen Elizabeth II's reign and the events that shaped the second half of the 20th century. Early in the series, Winston Churchill plays a pretty prominent role, and one episode depicts a famous British artist, Graham Sutherland, painting Churchill's portrait. Over the course of a number of sittings, Sutherland and Churchill get to know one another as the artist labors painstakingly over the painting of Churchill. On Churchill's 80th birthday, the finished product was given to him in a public ceremony at the Houses of Parliament. Churchill, by all accounts, hated the painting, hated it. It very accurately revealed his 80-year-old body, his balding head, his gnarled hands, and his infamous scowl. That particular episode ends with Churchill taking the painting to his country home and throwing it onto a bonfire and burning it because he hated it so much. In real life, however, this was not done by Churchill himself, but rather it was done by his secretary uh, at Churchill's direction and with the approval of Churchill's wife, Clementine. Like Churchill, we loathe to see just how much sin has broken and corrupted us. We can barely stand to see it in ourselves. And unfortunately, like Churchill, we are far too willing to destroy an amazing work of art. Theologians often use the term total depravity to express the degree to which our humanity has been impacted, corrupted by sin or the fall. Here's what the popular theologian R.C. Sproul had to say about this concept. I'm just going to read this quote, it's a little bit long. In the Reformed tradition, total depravity does not mean utter depravity. We often use the term total as a synonym for utter or for completely, So the notion of total depravity conjures up the idea that every human being is as bad as that person could possibly be. You might think of an arch fiend of history such as Adolf Hitler and say that there was absolutely no redeeming virtue in the man, but I suspect that he had some affection for his mother. As wicked as Hitler was, we can still conceive of ways in which he could have been even more wicked than he actually was. So the idea of total and total depravity doesn't mean that all human beings are as wicked as they can possibly be. It means that the fall was so serious that it affects the whole person. That's the point. That fallenness or the fallenness that captures and grips our human nature affects our bodies. That's why we become ill and die. It affects our minds and our thinking. We still have the capacity to think, but the Bible says that the mind has become darkened and weakened. The will of man is no longer in its pristine state of moral power. The will according to the New Testament, is now in bondage. We are enslaved to the evil impulses and desires of our hearts. The body, the mind, the will, the spirit, indeed the whole person, has been infected by the power of sin. Now, whether or not you believe in the origin story of our brokenness, I think you'll at least have to agree that our sacred bodies are indeed broken and breaking. And that brokenness isn't just limited to the effects of age on our body, as in the story of Churchill's painting. The brokenness, as Sproul mentions, is also psychological. We struggle with depression. We struggle with anxiety. People struggle with paranoia. As Christians who believe in total depravity, we shouldn't be surprised to see then people who are burdened with homosexuality and with gender dysphoria. God's work of art has been shattered. It has been corrupted. It is broken, that brokenness also impacts our thinking, our will, our desires. In other words, we often, if not almost always, are tempted to engage in things that do even more damage to God's work of art. We have to acknowledge that's true. In Genesis 4, Cain murders his brother Abel. In Genesis 6, we see sexual, sexual exploitation in an unequal power dynamic. In Genesis 9, Moses gets drunk He passes out naked, and then Ham, his son, exposes his sin to his brothers dishonoring his father. Just a bit later, Abraham takes a concubine, though he's married to Sarah. In the Old Testament, we have the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, we have all these sin lists. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21 is one of them. I'm going to read it. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, all sin damages the work of art that God has created. And all of those sins tear at the broader fabric of humanity itself. And if that's true, what I would invite you to do this morning is to, to consider what God has to say about hum, human morality and why. If God is the designer of the machine, then surely he knows best what will harm us. Surely he knows best what will help us flourish. My suggestion to do to you today, my invitation to you today, is that you would go home later today, maybe later this week, and really ponder over why it is that God puts these standards in scriptures. And again, my prayer is that what you would discover is that as the designer of the human machine, it's because he wants to protect you, and he wants to protect the fabric of humanity, and he wants you to flourish. So far, I've argued that the human body is sacred because we're God's unique of art, work of art. We've also looked at how that work of art has been impacted, broken, and corrupted by sin, or what we call the fall. But finally, what I want to draw your attention to is the fact that our bodies will be redeemed by Jesus. Look at verses uh, 1 through 5 of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Some of you will notice here in John chapter 1 that it begins the same way as Genesis 1, in the beginning. John's borrowing this language from Genesis 1. He's borrowing the themes of light and darkness from Genesis as well. He's hinting at restoration. He's hinting at a coming redemption, not just of creation, but of human flesh itself. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, John writes, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God cared so much about His work of art that His Son Jesus entered into this physical world taking on flesh and blood. In Romans 8, Paul addresses this redemptive act. Verse 18, he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. It's a pretty amazing promise. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Probably some of you are able to identify with that statement. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, here in Romans chapter 8, the middle of Paul's most theologically astute book he's saying part of what Jesus came to do was to redeem our human bodies these works of art that God has made why because God wasn't willing to let us go he wasn't willing to lose us he wasn't willing to allow his works of art to be destroyed and to suffer permanent decay Jesus entered into human history on a rescue mission in order to redeem not just our spirits but our bodies as well and according to Paul, that means that we will finally be who God created us to be. What Paul hints at in Romans 8, he now says more explicitly in First Corinthians 15. He writes this, There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.